Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And our text this morning will be verses 6 to 8. Verses 6 to 8. Listen to God's word as it is read this morning. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Why don't we go to prayer this morning before we walk through this text this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have put it in human language that we might read it and understand it, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate it so that we can get it right. And because we have the Holy Spirit, we know that we can know what is said here for true and for real and for right, and we don't have to doubt it. And so we praise and we thank you for that. And so again, this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us the truths that are in this word and would impress upon our heart these truths and that we would have the Holy Spirit work in our lives, whether that is to break us down, to correct us, to encourage us, to lift us up. In whatever way that your word goes forth, I pray that your, we would, your Holy Spirit would use it for your glory. And so this morning again, I pray that you would again teach us through your word, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we have been working our way through the book of Thessalonians, and we've been going slowly, but we understand this, that the book of Thessalonians is a letter. And we, we, we've been speaking about how this is a letter that is written by Paul, along with his associates who are, who are giving a rubber stamp to what he is writing. They agree with Paul. And that he begins this letter and he's writing it in a typical form of a letter that is written in the Greco-Roman times in the first century. And so he began with what we call the AAA beginning. He gave us the author, the audience, and the address. And so he starts this book with, the, with, with identifying in many ways why we should read this book. And we know because of the authors of this book who have received God's, are God's ministers of grace, that it is worth listening to. And we know that because it's addressed to the church at Thessalonica who is in Christ, it's addressed to believers and so it's for us. And he expresses the desire for grace to you in peace. And he's not saying, I want these things for you as much as he's saying, I want more of this for you, you already have God's grace working in your life. You already have his peace and I want you to know them in its fullness. And we said as we go through this book, really, that's our prayer as we go through this book, that we too will experience his grace deeper and that we will, under, we will have his peace in greater degree 
as we go through the truths of this book. Then we said that Paul shifted gears, as it were, and he, as he moved along, and in a typical fashion to the letters that are written at that time, he moves into this area of thanksgiving. We called it an exor- exordium, a place where he now starts to give thanks. And typically, they would give thanks for their audience, and they would, give, they would, they would say, to try to restore that relationship from distance. And so they wanted to say thank you and, and to say good things about them. But Paul, as he did with, his, with the greeting, now changes it and Christianizes it and he gives thanks. And he's not buttering up the Thessalonians. He's actually giving praise to God. He's giving praise to God for God's work in the Thessalonians. And so Paul's focus here is not to make much about the Thessalonians, but to make much about God and much about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this Thanksgiving, then Paul is, not, is going to go, cover many of the topics that he's going to speak about in the rest of the book. And he's also going to give us really marks of God's work in their lives. In other words, we talked about this grace that's expended. Well, how do we know that God's grace is working in their life? Well, he's going to give us marks or distinguishing characteristics of that saving grace that has taken place in their life and how it is now being demonstrated through the way they lived. In many ways, I mean, you could call this marks of the church. This is what a true church looks like. You could say, this is the mark of the elect. This is how they look. This is what takes place in them as God works in them. And so last week we looked really at the beginning at three distinguishing marks. And the first thing that we saw was simply that they, that when God genuinely saves people, there is spiritual fruit in it. I could, we could say this is visible spiritual fruit because it's not just that they, they've got something changed in them and, and, and attributes inside, but it demonstrates itself in an outward working. There was, there was labor, there was work, there was steadfastness, and there was a visibleness to their faith. It wasn't just, there wasn't just these attributes, as it were, that were inward, but ultimately it produced a change. We saw that God's, a genuine work of salvation comes from God's loving choice. You're here, you're in the church because of God's loving choice. He's motivated by love and he chose you for his own. And so it is by his loving choice that they are in Christ and that this grace is in them and is being manifest through them. And then thirdly, we saw that any genuine work of God's grace comes from a public declaration of the gospel. The gospel must go forth. It must be proclaimed boldly and correctly. And when that takes place, when, that's co- when that boldness of the gospel goes forth, coupled with those who go forth in the power of the Spirit and conviction, God uses that to save. And so this morning, as we go through six to eight, we're going to see two more characteristics or two more marks of God's work of grace in their life. Two more things that Paul looks at the Thessalonians and says, 
I give praise to God. I give all glory to the Lord Jesus Christ because of what I see in your life. And the two things that we will see are that they became godly imitators of, le- of godly leaders. And secondly, they themselves became a godly example and witness to others. And so Paul says, I give thanks because I see this working in your life. And so Paul begins in verse 6, and he, he says, you guys became godly imitators of godly men or godly leaders. He says in verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So he continues here as he brings on attributes or, or things that are evident in them to give thanks to God. And though we have a new sentence here, at least in our, in our English Bibles, there's a connection that goes on. Paul is one of these guys, and if he was in English class, we, would, we wouldn't give him very good grades because he does run on sentences and he doesn't seem to know when he should change subjects and when he shouldn't, and he's, he's not tidy. And so this, 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 act, this verse actually begins with an and. And so there's an idea here that there's a connection with goes on with what's before. Now what's interesting is it's not just the end, but there's this word become that we see in this passage that ties us verse 6 back to verse 5 and what's gone on before. Now you notice he says, you also became. Now that word is again used in verse 5. If you look at the beginning of verse 5, he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word, word only. In other words, it's literally the gospel did not become to you. In other words, there's, there's this transformation or moving. It did not become to you in word only, but there was something more that took place. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, what kind of men we proved to be among you. Now that word proved again is the same word. In other words, you be, it became to you what we became to you. And then as he moves into verse 6, he says the same thing. You also became imitators. And so there's this thread that's running through of becoming. You became, you became, you became. So what does he mean? What is he, what is he doing with that? Well, Paul seems to be stressing here the idea of transformation. In other words, there's a transformation that's taking place. As the work of God comes, as God comes in in a saving way, there is a transformation that takes place. And he says, it's transforming all over the place and all fronts everywhere. God is transforming people. There, There cannot help but be a change. There is this continual progression. There is this change that is taking place. That there is this transformation that is taking place. And so Paul is saying, listen, there is is a transformation. There cannot help 
but be a change that takes place when you come to salvation. There cannot help but be something that is different. There's a progression. And so what, what we do know is this. The gospel, when it comes in power of the Holy Spirit and changed lives, is not just about believing some facts about God, some historical trivia that, that we understand. It's not just about that. Now, we have to have the facts right. There's no doubt about it. But when the gospel truly comes in power, when God works, there's a real transformation. And so he says, <clears throat> understand this. The gospel is, is transformative. In other words, if you have accepted a gospel and you understand a creed and there's no change, that's not saving faith. That's not saving work of God. Because with it comes transformation. It's not just information. It becomes transformation. And so he says there's, there's this transformation. And one of those transformations, he says, is that you become imitators. Imitators. There's this concept of imitation. He says you also became imitators. You became imitators. Now this is a, this is a fairly strong word here. And it's a group, the Greek word mimitos. And if you, if you say it, and you say it quickly, you can kind of hear the echo in our own language of an English word, mimitos, or, or mimesis. And the idea, it means to mimic, or mimicry, to, to uh, it's often, this word is used in literary context when someone uses someone else's work. So if I was to write a paper and I used your work, I'm mimicking you. If I, if I do art and I paint something like yours, I'm mimicking you. I'm using your work in my work. And Paul says, actually, you guys became mimickers. You became imitators. Now, some of your translations might say followers, but the idea is much stronger than just becoming a follower. It's, it's stronger than the idea of, of, of just taking an interest, but it has the idea of conformity. And so there's, it, it's more than just an interest or a level of fascination with something, but it is the idea of conforming to something. It has the idea of conforming one's life to something that is deemed to be a good model, something that you want your model, your life to be like. It's like taking uh, hot metal and putting it into a form. It conforms to that. It is, it is what you are conforming your life to. And he says, you are mimicking, you are forming your life into the idea of this model. And so he says, you became imitators, you became mimics. And he says, you became mimics of us. And he says, you became mimickers of us. And again, he says, knowing, brethren, beloved, he says, knowing what kind of men we were above, uh, among you. In other words, you saw who we were. 
You saw what we became among you. And he says, you began to imitate us. Now this word imitator is only used six times in the New Testament, five times by Paul. And now I want you to listen to this because this concept is new to me and and it just struck me. Imitation is Paul's word for discipleship. I'm going to say that again. Imitation is a critical term that Paul uses to describe discipleship. In other words, this is what should take place in the Christian life. This is what should take place in the Christian life. That's interesting. Because if I was to ask you about your Christian life, and if I was to ask you, what is a word that describes you, would this be the word that comes to mind? Would you say, I'm an imitator? Probably not, right? Some of us might say, well, I'm an, I'm an agitator. Like, no. I, but we, we would say, like, that's not the word that we think of. And yet, this is central to what Paul teaches. It's just, it is, it is for Paul the natural progression. This is what a believer does. He becomes an imitator. This is what should take place. This is what the Christian life is. And in fact, Paul's expectation is that he, as he imitates Christ, he says what? I think you should imitate me. That's just his expectation. There's no apology. Paul is not even one bit apologetic about this. He doesn't say, well, kind of, you know, like, I no. It's actually just assumed. Right? It's just assumed. Just like the Bible assumes the existence of God, Paul assumes that you should follow his example. He uses this word in several places. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. In other words, this Gentile church became imitators of the Jewish church in Judea. That is what they did. They became those who became imitators of the church. He says, again, he says in 1 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore I exhort you, exhort you, I'm sorry, to be imitators of me, be imitators of me. No apology. Imitate me. Become imitators, he tells the Corinthians, and do it of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says the same thing. Be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. And in Ephesians, he uses the same noun, and he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children of us and the Lord. And Paul is saying, you guys became imitators, and you are to imitate me, and and now I see the fruit of that. In other words, I look at you, I look at the church in Thessalonica, and guess what? I praise God and I lift up his name and I give him all glory and praise and honor because this is his work. 
Only God could make you turn this way and become imitators of us. Now notice this. He does say, imitators of us. Paul says, guess what? It's not just me that you're imitating. Remember, at the, at the beginning of this book, he talked about Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and he says, you guys are what? Mimicking each one of these per- persons. You are mimicking, you are following, not just me, but all those that you know who came and planted this church, who were godly before you, you know who they are. And he says, you have started to act just like them. And through this book, we we will see how they have imitated them. They imitated their work. They imitated their behavior. And so they are those who begin to act like Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. And so their lives are being conformed. They are being conformed and they are imitating the leaders that have brought them the gospel. Now it's interesting because imitation is not particularly popular today. Right? I've got to be me. I've got to express myself. In fact, my greatest spiritual goal is that I be unique and different than everybody else. And yet the Bible doesn't know anything about that. The Bible doesn't know anything about that because we are all being conformed. We are all being pushed in a direction to Christ-likeness and to follow those who are godly in front of us. Now again, we're not saying that we're all good. It's clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we're all different. We're all gifted different. We all, all have different Uh, educations, background, and gifting. We're not saying that you're all going to march the same way. You're all going to look the same. But the idea is that we start to follow those who go before us and to, to start to mimic the godly things that they do. Now, you're never going to be identical. You're not going to say things the same way, right? Somebody's going to come along and say, say something in a certain way, right? Right? So you, one person's going to come along and say, hey, I love you, brother. Another one's going to say, hey, dude, you're awesome, right? We're, we're not, we're not going to be the same, but the sentiment is the same, right? The sentiment is the same. We're all moving in the same direction. So Paul says, actually, the opposite the opposite is true in Christianity. We're not trying to be unique. We're not trying to be our, our self-expression. We're actually called to imitate and conform. Now, of course, Paul leaves the best to last. He's saying, just, just so that you're, you, you know, you're called to follow godly leaders, and now you're getting a little nervous because you said, you know what, I don't mind finding, following the Lord, but men... Well, they're, they're flawed, right? And we have to be careful, and it's true. And so he gives us really the heightened thing that we are to follow and maybe, maybe the guardrails for following people as he comes to this next part, and of the Lord. This is the heightened object of Im- imitation, as one writer said. That is the ultimate model, the one that we should follow. 
and he leaves it to the end of this phrase, and he says, here, just at the end of this clause, here, just in case you're wondering, you're following what? The Lord. Ultimately, Paul is following the Lord, and you follow Paul as we follow, as he follows the Lord. And again, this, the reference here to the Lord is to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been referred to in verse 1. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's been referred to in verse 3, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again here, we are talking about Jesus Christ, the ultimate example. The one who came to earth, who came in incarnation, who was the son of God, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life here on earth, was the perfect example of humanity as he walked on earth under the power of the Holy Spirit in perfect obedience. He is the example for us. He is the ultimate example. He is the perfect pattern, the image of perfection. And so Paul says, this is ultimately your ultimate example. You are following godly leaders as they follow the perfect example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in the ultimate sense in Romans 8.29. In Romans 8.29. A familiar passage to us. And Paul writes... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Conform to the image of his Son. Now here's, when we look at, the, at redemption, we say, what is the end of redemption? And of course, our first answer is always what? The glory of God. Everything is about the glory of God. But in redemption, God also has another purpose. There is another purpose in redemption. And so we, we want to make sure that, first of all, that God gets all the glory that he is due, all the praise, all honor, all glory must go to him. But he says here that you might be what conform to the image of his son. In other words, God didn't save you because you were so wonderful and so great. He didn't save you to keep you the way he, you are. He saved you to conform you to the image of, your, of his son. And the reason he loves you is because you stand in the righteousness of God who he sees as the righteousness of his son and therefore he wants you conformed to that son. That is that process of sanctification that we begin at salvation as we start to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the goal of our sanctification. It is the goal of our glorification. He says, you are as good as in heaven. This is what you're going to be. You're going to see Jesus Christ according to 1 John 3. You are going to be conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will see him face to face, for you shall be like him. That is the end. That is the imitation. That is the goal of the Christian life. And Paul says... God uses mediatorial means in order for his purpose in being Christ-like being met. In other words, 
standard is expressed through faithful shepherds and pastors who set the bar and who are his mediators in flesh to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul looked at the Thessalonian congregation, he sees this taking place. They were mimicking Paul. They were mimicking Silas. They were mimicking Timothy. God has always intended that you follow faithful men. He's always intended that you follow faithful leaders as they follow Christ. Well, he gives us a little more information in, in this verse. He now gives us the circumstances of the imitation that they are taking place. And there's two, really two, two circumstances that are taking place here. They are, they are imitating, we would say, in much tribulation, and they are imitating with much joy of the Spirit. With much joy of the Spirit. Now, as we look at these, as we look at that, we would say the circumstances of what they practice imitation, we see this in much tribulation. So they received the word, it says, receiving the word. And again, that is speaking of the gospel. That's the same uh, thing that we looked at earlier the word of the Lord. And so he says, you received what? The gospel. In other words, you received it willingly. The idea is you put out the welcome mat. You, you yourselves received it. You took it happily. You took it joyfully to yourself. And he says, you received that word. We would say in tribulation. In tri- much, in, actually in much tribulation. And he says, you received the gospel, you, you, your point of salvation, when you received it, there was tribulation. There was, the idea of this word is the idea of pressure, of being squeezed. It is sometimes used of, of husking corn or, take, or, or taking the chaff off of wheat. It is also used of grapes, where you squeeze a grape until the juice pops out. And he says, you were under great pressure in, in circumstances when you received the gospel. This isn't mild discomfort. This is hard circumstances, suffering, anguish, distress, oppression, and affliction. And he says, that's who you were when you came to salvation. You received this in the midst. Now remember when we talked about this before, that when they came to salvation, when they came, when Paul brought the gospel to them, they came at, at a point where the, socially they were not accepted. Right? The church was not seen as being beneficial to Thessalonica. It was not seen as a good thing. Acts 17 records that to, uh, for us. Paul comes to the synagogue of the Jews and according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. So Paul is coming in. He starts with what would be an audience that would have a background that would understand what he is saying. And according to Paul, he uh, explaining and giving evidence that 
the Christ had to suffer, rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joyed Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. They wanted to bring the missionaries out. They wanted to get rid of them. They wanted to get them into trouble. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men have upset the world and have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. In other words, when they came to salvation, they weren't, they weren't, just, they weren't just greeted with open arms as if society thought that they were a great thing. In fact, we are, we are getting to that point in our society. There was just a, a, a poll done, and the, and the greatest threat to society was deemed to be religion. And we have so watered down the gospel, and we have so uh, down, uh, downplayed the cost of discipleship that we have been, people have been lied to, and they've been told, come to Jesus, and your life is going to get better. Come to Jesus and your mortgage will be healed. Your health will be great. You will be wealthy and all of your fleshly desires will be met. And that goes exactly contrary to what is being taught here. People are surprised and think somehow that when difficulties come in the Christian life, that God must be mad at them and there must be something wrong and their faith must not be strong enough and they fail to realize that, God, that Christ promised this would happen. It has always been the case that when people come to salvation and have a vital faith, that they are not welcomed, they are persecuted. Jesus said to his disciples in the, in the upper room, These things have I spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have, and again the idea is continually, tribulation. That's, your, that's where you live. You live in tribulation. But be of courage, I have overcome the world. There's going to come a time when I, when I will put an end to it. But guess what? Until then, your life is going to be squeezed. It's not going to be comfortable. Paul and Barnabas told the church at Galatia that they, would, they must go through many tribulations in order to enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it, if you, when you get saved, tribulation is coming. That's just part of the package. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all, the desires, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is a slave beyond its master? If Christ was persecuted, how much more should we be willing to? 
And so a true Christianity will find resistance. That is, that is the Christian life. And so their circumstances in which they became imitators was one where they were in much tribulation. But there's this second set of circumstances here, and it's kind of a paradox because it, it, it's just, it doesn't seem to go with next. But he says, they received the word with the joy of the Spirit. They received it with the, with the joy of the Spirit. And so here we have we have this, this, this idea, well, in one sense we're being squeezed, in one sense circumstances are bad, and yet th- there's this other set of circumstances that, guess what, they're actually having joy. They have the joy of the Spirit. In other words, joy that is produced by the Spirit. This is a supernatural joy. This is something that is produced by the Spirit, can only come from the Spirit, cannot be produced by the flesh. It is something that only a believer can have. Now, it's interesting that it is under tribu- they, they came to salvation in tribulation, which is o- another a mark of a believer. And now they have what? Joy. A joy, a joy and a satisfaction in the circumstances, a peace of their soul that God is in control and that everything, whether spiritually or physically, is in exactly where God wants it to be and they can rest. And again, this is, this is just not normal. The world looks at this and, and they just th- they say, this is absolutely crazy. And, and in many ways, the more joy that you have, the more that the world hates you because they can't understand it. Nothing drives them more insane that the more they persecute you, the more happy you are. The more joy you have, the more satisfaction you have. And that's the thing about genuine faith. The more that it is persecuted, the more that it is pushed, the more that, it is, that it, evil is done to you, true salvation produces joy. And what is, what is given to you as evil ultimately produces good for you. And the more you're persecuted, the more happy you are. And so... I'm afraid that maybe sometimes the lack of joy that we have is because we're not suffering anything and so there's nothing to have to have to create joy. And there's a sense in which the more that we are persecuted, the more that we have trouble, the more joy that we will experience. Now that's just backwards. Right? That's not intuitive at all. And yet that's how we know true, a true work of God has taken place because this actually happens. And so the Christian receives joy, has joy. And Paul says, I see this taking place in your life. Rather than becoming bitter and their spirit broke, they found the experience changed evil into something that worked for their spiritual good. And because of that, there was a rapid spread of the gospel because it, this was just unusual. 
And so Paul says, I praise God for you. I praise God for you. Because what God is doing in your life, you are mimicking us. In spite of the circumstances, in spite of what is taking place, there is a joy that you have. I see that your salvation is genuine and I praise you. I give you God glory and praise. So as we look at this, we see that the the Thessalonians had become imitators of godly leaders. They became, as part of their discipleship, imitators of godly leaders. And so the question becomes, do you know what you're following? Do you know who you're following? Do you know who are your heroes? Whose posters are on your walls? Who do you listen to? Who do you emulate? Now remember this, they became imitators. They became imitators of Paul. In other words, listen very carefully. They became what they imitated. They became who they followed. And what you follow will what is what you will become. And Paul says, you need to what? Find godly leaders and follow them as they follow Christ. And so part of, part of being a believer then is to find godly leaders and godly people to follow and to mimic. We want to get away from this idea that somehow my faith is mine and I'm this independent contractor between me and God. God has never intended for you to live the Christian life alone. He has put you in the church. And in fact, if you're not associated with the church, then you've cut off the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's where he's placed you. And so he says, who do you follow? Are you independent? Are you doing your own thing? You need to find godly people to mimic. You need to find those people in the congregation who are following the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow. So the question is, who are you following? Paul says part of the Christian life is to follow, to imitate. That's part of discipleship. And so we're called to find those more mature in us in the faith and to mimic them. That is God's design. Well, that takes us to point number two. Point number two is going to be shorter because I know some of you are getting a little nervous. He went a long time on number one. So he says, not only are, are they to follow godly examples to, to, the, to imitate godly leaders, but he says they also became godly examples. In other words, when God works, 
and God has a true saving work in their life and His grace is extended, you will find that in that imitation ultimately leads that you become the next example. You become the one who now is to be followed. So they didn't just become imitators of the apostles and those who ministered with them and they didn't just become imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they themselves became an example for others. And so the result of imitation is the fact that they become examples themselves. They became a model. They became a mark. This is often used of a die that is used to strike metal to put an exact image in the metal. And he says, you became examples. You became something that other people could now follow and replicate. And he says, they, they became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Acadia. In other words, they became an example to others that the vitality of their faith and the vitality in which they lived before God, the fact of their fervency to be obedient became an example to all the believers. Not not just to unbelievers, not just to the pagans, but maybe even more difficultly to other churches. He said to other believers. And now that has been an example to all those in Macedonia and Achaia, two Roman provinces. He says, "Your, your example has gone out. Now we remember that Thessalonian, the Thessalonica is on the Oh, you, Ignean Road, or the Ignean Way, Ignatian Way, sorry. And it is a road that went across Macedonia. It put, put it in contact with all the rest of it. It was a port city that had ships that would come from all over. And he says, your example has been so great that now that your example has traveled down those, those highways, all the highways that are leading here and all of the ships that are coming, it is now spread. People have come to Thessalonica. They have seen who you are. And now you have become an example to all the churches because they've heard about you. They've seen you as the travelers come. And some of their best testimony was taken by the travelers and even other believers as they came to Thessalonica and then they moved across back to where they were going. Just as a side note, you'll notice that Paul, as he went in his ministry, was very strategic. He went to the major cities and the major portways and the the major trade routes so that when the gospel was preached, people came in contact with it and they took the gospel back to where they went. Paul just wasn't willy-nilly. He didn't start out in the middle of a field. He had a plan. And he went to those major centers so that there was a greater impact so the gospel would spread. This was not just a temporary thing. We, we, we find in 2 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, Therefore we speak, or speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecution and afflictions which you endure. In other words, this wasn't an emotional start. They continued to go on because they were transformed truly by the gospel. And they became that, that example that diffused to the provinces 
as it reached. And it reached out to Philippi, to Berea, over to Paul in Corinth. Paul is writing this letter from Corinth. He says, For the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. In other words, again, the word of the Lord, the gospel went forth from you and, and, and it sounded forth from you. The idea is, is the idea of blowing a trumpet or rolling thunder. There's many different ways that this word is used. Probably here, most likely the idea of the resounding of a trumpet as it, as it goes across the air. All of the words that, that, that are used are all the terminology that is used for this word, whether it's echoing or thunder or the sound of a trumpet has the idea that it wasn't a whisper. In other words, it was loud. It went across and it's reverberating and it's still, the sound is still in the air. And he says, the word sounded forth from you like a trumpet blast that, that just shook and reverberates and still hangs in the air. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith to where God has gone forth. In other words, it's gone everywhere. Now, this is a bit of hyperbole because, of course, it didn't go across the whole world, but the idea is it spread even greater than that. And notice this. This is not a megachurch. This is not a megachurch. This is not a big church. This is a little church. This is a new church. This is probably six months old at this point. And they didn't have this big evangelistic strategy. They didn't have this big propaganda campaign. What is the primary driving force of their gospel testimony? The vitality of their Christian life. The vitality of the Christian life. In other words, they lived a life that was so on fire for God and were demonstrating so much the fruits of the Spirit and demonstrating the joy of the Lord and were willing to suffer for their faith that the world could not help but take notice. I find it interesting, and this is pointed out to me, that Paul very rarely actually calls for people to be missionaries. Paul very rarely talks about missionaries going forth. Because for Paul, being a believer and understanding the gospel, the natural response to salvation is to be evangelistic. It should be just dripping out of you. Because he has saved you, he has changed you, and what he has done for you should give you a compassion for the souls of the lost. And it should be a natural part of living your Christian life where you walk moment by moment in obedience to him, have such joy in your life, and the fruits of the Spirit are coming through as you are in, in obedience and submission to the Spirit, that it should be just a natural part of who you are. It shouldn't be something where we're in the back room trying to drum up our courage. It should spill over. It should spill over like a cup that's being filled with water and it just keeps pouring over. He says, this is what you're called to do. He says, in every place your faith towards God, your faith was towards him. 
You are looking to him as your object. God is the one who you place your trust in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it has gone forth and it's still going forth. And he says, because of that, he says, I have nothing to say to you. I don't have to say anything about you. Paul is saying, listen, everywhere I go, I'm sitting in Corinth and guess what? People are coming up to me and they're saying, Paul, what about that church in Thessalonica? What about, look at them. You're, everywhere people go, they're talking about you because of the vitality of your faith, because you have become an example as you have imitated those who, as you have become imitators of Paul, who's imitators of Christ. He says, now it just pours forth everywhere. We don't have to introduce you. We don't have to say, talk about your faith. We don't have to talk about what God's done in you, in your life. By the time I get someplace, they already know. I don't say, hey, do you know that there's a church in Thessalonica? I don't have to do that because guess what? People are coming to me and say, look, have you heard about the church in Thessalonica? Look at the way they're living. And Paul says, this is what takes place. This is what takes place when a true work of God happens in someone's life. The gospel goes forth. Your testimony goes before you. The vitality of your faith and your life adorns the gospel to the point where people already know and it and opens doors. It doesn't replace the giving of the gospel because the word of God went forth, but it is part of what God uses to spread the gospel. And that's what a true work of God does in people's life. Your life will stand out so much that, the, that out of the radical devotion to Christ will naturally flow the verbal testimony to the gospel and you will ordain the gospel so that it is heard. Well, we... How do we apply this ultimately? Well, we asked the question in the first point, who are you imitating? Who are you imitating? But it's only, it's only fair that we now ask the question, who's following you? Should they be following you? Are you living a life that is worthy of imitation? You're called to be. You're called to be an example because the normal process is what? Imitation to example, which means you are now to be one to be imitated. So the question is, when you look behind, who's following you? If someone was to follow you, if someone was to come along and start to follow you, where would they be in a year? Where would they be in two years? Would they be more in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would they be more evangelistic? Would they be more righteous? Would they be more holy? And so the question is, are you an example to be followed? What kind of example are you? And Paul says, listen, part the natural progression of salvation is that you go from baby to adult. You go from being one who imitates to ultimately to be one to be imitated. You may always continue to follow, 
but at least you need to be able to be followed. And so the question, has God so touched your life and made such a vital difference in your life that you live your life in such a way that others can follow you? And ultimately, we would say this. If you're following no one and no one's following you, one must go back to this and say, has a true saving grace of God worked in my life? And if if this is none of you, then you need to cry out in repentance and ask God to grant you repentance and turn to Jesus Christ and rest on his finished work. But maybe for some of us, we're just what we need is that we need to get serious and that we need to ask God to help us to be imitators and that we have to be proactive in following and we have to be proactive in being examples. And maybe we just need to repent of where, where we have been and ask God to help us to follow. Let us follow godly men and let us be those who become our godly leaders and let us become those who can be followed. And so let us ask God to work in our lives that we too might be imitators and examples for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. And we thank you for its clarity. And then, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to be those who are obedient to your word. And that we would be those who would be willing to be imitators, recognizing that it is part of discipleship. And that we would grow into those who would be examples to be followed. And we pray that you would work in our hearts to to do this. And we know apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, this will not take place. And so we pray that you would make us a church of imitators and examples to follow. We pray this in your name and for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.